You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, everyone, I'm going to welcome you back to your seats. If you want to get some last coffee, pastries, head them back. If you need a Bible today, we have some hardback black Bibles on the resource table in the back of the room. Feel free to grab one of those on your way back to your seat. We're going to be be in John 19. So John 19 is where we are. Verses 25 through 27. And if you're using one of those hardback black Bibles, that's page 905. So John 19, 25 through 27. As Jesus hung on the cross, he made seven different statements that we have recorded, and each of those statements is packed with substance and meaning. And in the midst of our most significant trials and discomfort, the things that are truest about ourselves are typically what comes out. And here on the cross, we see the character of Jesus being revealed. And so we're preaching through these seven statements in a series we've called Unveiled, each week looking at one of the statements all the way until Easter. And as Jesus is literally stripped bare on the cross physically, his character and identity is also being revealed more fully. The statement that we're going to look at today is a highly relational one. It's relationally oriented and expresses Jesus's deep care for his followers. It reveals how important our relational networks are for us as his disciples. And so if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you're able, John 19, verses 25 through 27 is where we'll be. I'll read and you can follow along. It says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby... He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of the Lord. Go grab a seat. I'll pray for us. So, Father, we thank you each week that we have the chance to open your word. We thank you that in it you reveal to us who you are your story of redemption that you're writing in the world and what it means for us as your followers. And so we ask for your help right now. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will last forever. And so by your spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last fall, Gallup completed a months-long survey representing 142 countries around the world, and what they found is that a significant number of adults worldwide experience some degree of loneliness on a regular basis. And this was most common among young adults aged 19 to 29. And what they found is actually that a majority of young adults feel at least a little bit lonely, and for many, loneliness is quite severe for them. Loneliness has reached epidemic levels, not only in our nation, but around the world. And those numbers go up for younger adults, and especially those living in urban areas. 
And so just thinking about even who's in the room, I'll just ask, how many people in this room over the last year have experienced loneliness or know someone who's experienced loneliness? It's okay to raise your hand. Sometimes we're embarrassed to admit it. Thank you, Michael, for raising really high. You're proud. That's good. We experience this. This is part of our human existence, and it's becoming more and more prevalent. In a recent podcast episode for The Atlantic, Dr. Vivek Murthy was interviewed about the loneliness in our country. And Dr. Murthy has twice been the U.S. Surgeon General, served under three different presidents, Obama, Trump, and Biden. And he started the podcast interview by defining loneliness for us. And he defined it as the feeling that we have when we notice that there's a gap between the human relationships that we need and the the ones we want, the ones our hearts long for, and the human connection that we actually have. He goes on to explain that loneliness is not determined by the number of people around us, but by the genuine relational connections that we have in life. And he says, quote, you could be surrounded by just one or two people and feel perfectly content if you have strong relationships with them. But you could also, like many college students, live on a college campus that has thousands of people, or you could be in a workplace surrounded by hundreds of people but feel profoundly alone, which is sadly the experience that many people have today, end quote. In a technological age where people are more connected in some ways than they've ever been, we feel lonelier than we ever have. And the reality is that relationships are hard. They require work. They're not always easy. If we want to develop meaningful relationships, that does require intentionality. It requires work. Often we, don't feel, we feel like we don't know how. We feel uncertain of how to make the investment. We're unsure if others are going to reciprocate that investment. And we can feel stuck in these cycles of loneliness. Even if we're surrounded by a crowd on a college campus, an urban office complex, or the expanse of social media, My goal in this sermon is not to give you a full theology and a practice of friendship and relationships. That would be like an entire series or a book. And that's also not what Jesus is doing on the cross, but he is making one two-part statement that has profound impact on the way that we're meant to see our relationships, how we're meant to live within them. Jesus cares deeply about our network of relationships, and he wants us to see one another as family. Unfortunately, there is no quick fix for our loneliness. I don't have a remedy if you have this feeling of awkwardness or uncertainty in relationships. There's no easy solution for that. But I do want us to see that Jesus cares deeply about these relational networks. And we all have a responsibility to patiently pursue one another, to persevere in the practice of knowing others and being known by them. And so here's the primary message of the sermon this morning. As Jesus is bound to the cross with nails, he binds us together as family. On the cross, Jesus reframes our relationships. And as his followers, we must see the ecosystem of our relationships as integral to our health as his disciples. Jesus uses an analogy or this symbolism of family for the type of relationships he's called us to have. This is something God does often throughout the Bible, uses familial language, because the family is such an important part of human existence. But unfortunately for some people, the analogy of family doesn't work very well because you didn't experience family in the way it was designed. 
In the end, Jesus wants us to see ourselves as part of an interdependent community of God's people. Whether you use the family analogy or not, that's the design. That's what he wants. And then to take practical steps to invest in one another as such. And so our outline this morning is threefold. The first, Jesus calls us to live like family. Second, Jesus confronts the challenges of family. And third, Jesus recreates us as family. So first, Jesus calls us to live like family. As Jesus is hanging, persecuted by the world, falsely accused, stripped naked, hanging on a cross, he has this small group of people there who are supporting him. And verse 25 begins with the words, but standing by the cross of Jesus were, and then he lists these four women. And this phrase is meant to signal a contrast. John, the author of this gospel, is intentional. In verse 23, there were four soldiers dividing the garments of Jesus among them. And in contrast, in verse 25, there are four women standing in solidarity with Jesus at the cross. And the four women are listed here. The first is Jesus' mother. The second is his mother's sister. The third is Mary, the wife of Clopas. And fourth is Mary Magdalene. Even as the world crucifies Jesus, he is comforted by the relational presence of these four women. And then in verse 26, we are told there's a fifth person there at the cross with them, and he is called the disciple whom he loved. This is the same disciple who reclines at table next to Jesus in John 13. This beloved disciple is the same one who is with Peter and Jesus in John 20. And in John 20, verse 20, he's identified as John, the author of the gospel. Now here at the cross, John is standing with these four women and Jesus looks at his mother and he looks at John and he delivers the third statement from the cross and it comes in two parts. First, Jesus says to his mother, woman, behold your son in verse 26. Then he says to John in verse 27, behold your mother. And then we get this little concluding statement that from that day onward, John took Mary to live with him and to live with him in his home. Now, there is some debate about whether Jesus is giving an analogy or symbolism for our relationships as followers here, or whether whether he's just doing his duty as the eldest son to make sure that his mother is taken care of before he dies. My understanding is that Jesus is in fact caring for his mother, but that that is a secondary way that he wants his disciples to understand his statements. His primary way is that he's reframing our relationship as followers. He wants John and Mary and all of his followers to see themselves as a new type of family. The divine son is dying so that we can all become sons and daughters. When Jesus calls Mary woman, he is clarifying their their roles at the cross. Mary is not there primarily as his mother, but as his disciple. And Jesus does something similar in John chapter 2. When Jesus is at the wedding in Cana with his mother, the hosts have run out of wine, and so Mary, concerned for the honor of the host, tells Jesus about it, implying that he should do something to remedy the situation. And in response, Jesus addresses her as woman and not as mother in John chapter 2, verse 4. And the reason he's doing this is not to dishonor her, 
but to remind her and everyone around them that he is assuming his role here as the divine king. He has come as God in the flesh, and Mary is there as his disciple. And in response, Mary doesn't kind of balk at it in John chapter 2 at the, at the wedding. She actually displays her faith in Jesus as God's anointed one when, he says to the, when she says to the servants at the wedding in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus famously turns the water into wine. Now here again, at the end of the gospel, Jesus calls Mary woman, not out of disrespect, but to remind her and the other four gathered at the cross that they are all his disciples. And as his disciples, he's calling them to care for one another. So the primary message is symbolic. It's this analogy of family. It points to the new identity we have in Jesus. However, this identity will necessarily have practical implications. Because if we claim to be family, and then we do not live like family, we have completely missed the point. So as a result, John takes Mary to his home. And according to church tradition, Mary lived with John for the rest of her life. Now, the analogy of family and the definition of family is not always easy to apply because we come from many different sorts of family structures. Some cultures throughout history have emphasized the immediate family, Others have emphasized the entire extended family. Every cultural expression of family will have certain positives and other shortcomings to it. And then within every culture and society, there will be a range of healthy to dysfunctional families. And you may be even thinking, if the church functioned like my family, it wouldn't be very good. So family is a helpful symbolic image for how God wants us to relate to one another, but it does have limitations, primarily based on our own social and cultural experiences of family. And so what I want to do right now is just name two ways that the concept of family is meant to express itself in how we are called to relate to one another. The first is that being family means we are mutually dependent. We become mutually dependent upon one another. God created us to depend on one another. Which is why Jesus gives commands to both Mary and John, not just one of them. If he was only concerned for Mary's care, he probably would have only given a command to John. He's giving commands to both of them. He's not just telling Mary to care for John as a mother or for John to care for Mary as a son. He's telling them to care for one another as children of God. And this involves relational, emotional, physical, spiritual care. This is holistic, mutual dependence. In his book, Made for People, Justin Whitmell Early talks about our need, our need for mutual dependence in the spiritual realm of life to experience the fullness of our relationship with God. And he writes, you cannot experience God the way you were made to until you experience him alongside others. And then Justin appeals to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Before sin entered the world, God looked at Adam when he was alone And he's saying, you're incomplete. It is not good for you to be alone. So he makes Eve. And only after Adam had another human companion was God able to say that it was very good. At one point in his book, Justin said that he was willing to risk sounding blasphemous when he wrote, you are made for people in such a way that you'll be lonely if it is just you and God. And here's why. 
Adam was willing, or Adam was with the all-knowing, holy, sufficient creator of the universe. He was with God, and yet he was incomplete without Eve. And we might think, well, wasn't God enough? Why wasn't God enough as a companion? Adam's incompleteness was not because of God's insufficiency, but because of ours. God created us to need other people. And without other people, we cannot experience the fullness of who God has revealed himself to be. So being family means becoming mutually dependent on one another. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, God designed us to need others. The second way that the analogy of family expresses itself is that being family means practical care for one another. Here's the reality for us today. If our shared identity as family just stays theoretical, if it just stays as an idea that we affirm, but never gets practically expressed in our lives, then we'll have missed our point. We'll miss the point. It will seem like an inauthentic idea. In our passage, John takes Mary to his home. He took responsibility for her needs, for shelter, and for food. He didn't simply say to Mary, Jesus just made us a family. Isn't that great? Let's sing about it and then ignore each other all week and then gather again to sing about it. How great it is to be family and then ignore each other all week. Some of you are thinking, that sounds kind of like what my family does, but that is, that's not the design. That is not the design. God wants us to live like family, not just on Sunday. What we do on Sunday is meant to have an impact on Monday through Saturday, and that includes our relational networks. In a very simple way, the practical implication of our new identity as family is that we will help meet each other's needs. And this can be as easy as signing up for a meal train when it gets sent around to the church. Over the past year, we've had about eight to ten meal trains that have gone around. When babies are born, medical needs arise, or family crisis strikes, and you all have been wonderful at signing up for those. And I just want to encourage you. I hear from these families that receive this type of care, and it has been incredibly meaningful for them each time. Now, a meal train is a very simple application of this. It's no less trivial because it's so basic, but of course, being family means so much more than that. It means sharing meals. It means following up on significant events in people's lives. It means cheering each other on. It means crying alongside one another when someone else is in pain. It means showing up in moments of need, and being present in life. Mitsu Shindo is an old, was an older member of our church who died last summer, and for the, past, or the last several years of her life, there were a couple of different members of River City who shared a responsibility of showing up in her life. People would go and spend hours, several hours with her in the middle of every day, share lunch, and, and be present with her in the midst of those last moments. We should not underestimate the impact of presence as an expression of practical care in our lives. It could not be possible right now to just list all the different ways that we care for one another. It's it's expansive. But if we want to live like family, we can ask ourselves, how do we care for others like family? And right now, I just want to encourage you to ask God's Spirit, if there's someone in your life that you can care for in a practical way. And then as a responsive follower of Jesus, who recognizes and yields to God's Spirit in your life, take a step and act upon the Spirit's prompting. 
When we talk about living like family, this is the sort of action that I want us to pursue. This is not just a vague response. I'm not calling you to have to care for everyone in this room all of the time. That's just not even possible for us. You don't need to feel that pressure. Sometimes in the ambiguity of that, we feel like we can't take any steps. However, there are people that you know about. There are real emotional, relational, and practical needs in their lives. And God has put these people into your life for a reason. And God's Spirit is prompting you to think about them for a reason. I don't believe that's an accident. So act upon those relationships. Act upon those prompts the Spirit's bring into your life. And then we will act like family when we do that over and over again for the rest of our lives. As Jesus calls us to live like family, he also confronts the challenges of family. I want to highlight two problems with relational networks. The first was common with the first century world of Jesus. The second was common to our 21st century world. Both, though, are confronted by Jesus' two-part statement from the cross. First, Jesus confronts the problem of group identities that are formed exclusively around biological family, around blood or clan or tribe, if you will. In the first century, people had a very strong group identity centered around our ethnicity, blood relations, shared culture, and this led to all sorts of good things like protection for the group, but also sorts of bad things like prejudice and exclusion. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus' statement is so significant, because Jesus does not assign the care of his mother to one of his brothers, but to another disciple. In this one statement from the cross, Jesus elevates the spiritual family over the biological family. The shared family identity Mary and John have as Jesus' disciples is now a stronger bond than the shared family identity Mary had with her other sons. Now, even though his brothers, James and Jude in particular, would eventually come to faith in Jesus as well, they were not at the cross because they did not yet believe Here at the cross, Jesus is reinforcing a theme that he highlights throughout his ministry and his teaching, that our highest allegiance is not to nation, family, or clan, it is to him. For example, in Luke 14, verse 26, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, when Jesus uses the word hate here in Luke, it is an intentionally extreme word. He doesn't want us to literally act with hate toward our family, which would mean that we would revile them with disgust. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that our allegiance to Jesus should be so high that in comparison, our family commitment seems so low that one might call that hate. Jesus is elevating the spiritual community, united around him, And by doing so, he's actually bringing dignity and value to every person within that community. Because regardless of what family, ethnicity, or tribe you come from, you belong as a member with equal value in the community. Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher, published his landmark book, A Secular Age, in 2007. And in his book, Taylor explored the development and impact of our modern secular society. And one of the ways that he did that was to look at the impact of Christianity on Western culture along five primary ways of thinking, which he called axes. And one of them had to do with an individual versus the group or the clan. And what he found 
was that over the past several thousand years, there's been an evolution in this, in our basic assumptions as a culture. Before Christianity came to the West, the predominant mode of thought was that individuals are unimportant. Only the clan or the tribe matters. Jesus revolutionized this way of thinking because he elevated the importance of the spiritual community which gathers around our shared belief and identity in him, which undermined the importance of our shared ethnic or biological identity. And before Christianity, Taylor argues, nearly every culture had an impersonal view of the universe. And in contrast, Christianity taught about a loving, personal, relational God who wants relationship with us. And because of Christianity's influence, Western culture adopted a belief that all individuals are important, have dignity, and deserve our help and our respect. This is a belief that our culture just assumes today, and we do not realize it has come through the influence of Christianity throughout history. Charles Taylor then goes on to observe that in our modern secular age, the importance of the individual has been divorced from the message of the personal God who gave it to us. And as a result, one of the primary narratives we believe now as a culture is that the highest purpose of a social order is no longer the promotion of a group or any particular set of values or virtues, but that we need to release every individual to choose whatever they want, whenever they want, without any hindrance of community expectations. Our problem is not that we prioritize our ethnic communities over our spiritual community. Our modern culture's problem is that we prioritize the individual over every community. We have eroded our network of relationships, and we find ourselves in a very lonely state of being. I mentioned the podcast interview earlier with U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy, in which he defines loneliness as the gap between the relational connection we want and the ones we actually have. In the interview... He goes on to talk about the staggering numbers of loneliness and the way that it's become a hidden phenomenon among our modern society. And he makes this profound observation when he says, quote, if you look at the numbers around loneliness and you realize that you've got more people who are struggling with loneliness than have diabetes in this country, it made me realize I should probably change my default a little bit in terms of how I approach other people. Rather than assuming that people are connected and great and fine, I should probably recognize there's a very real chance that the person in front of me might be struggling with loneliness. It's a powerful statement from Dr. Murthy. And it takes us out of the theoretical and into the practical. Charles Taylor's assessment of Western cultural development is helpful in helping us understand how we got here. But in reality... There are people in your life who experience loneliness on a regular basis. There are people in this room who experience loneliness on a regular basis. This is not just theoretical. We feel that in our lives on a regular basis. And Jesus' statement to Mary and John confronts our modern problem with relationships, just as it does the ancient problem with relationships. In our modern world, We favor the individual over the community, and as a result, people are left alone without a network of relationships to provide the support and the mutual dependence that we were designed to have as people. As a church in Minneapolis, we have a more extreme contextual problem than even just this broad one that's global, 
Because according to the Chamber of Commerce, our city ranks among the loneliest in our entire country. We are known for something that people like to call Minnesota nice. We're very friendly on the surface. However, according to a recent Star Tribune article, many newcomers to our city find it extremely difficult to form deep personal connections. And I've heard that from people in this room and outside of this room as they move to this city. One of the reasons a local PhD candidate cited for the difficulty it is for newcomers to form deep connections is because most Minnesotans stay in Minnesota. That happens a lot relative to other states in the country. And as a result, many people have at least what they think of as full relational networks. But the reality is that whether you're a newcomer to Minneapolis or you have lived in Minnesota your entire life, there's a significant amount of loneliness in our city. That is true for Christians and non-Christians alike. And Jesus had a different vision for us. He has a different idea of what he wants for humanity. He wants us to form deep personal connections, to invite others into relationship, to care for one another like family. And we don't passively form these types of relationships. We don't passively become the type of people we want to be. And we won't form them without practicing the habits of relationship. And if we act like family long enough, eventually we'll start to feel like family. And so let me just say four things, just briefly, about forming the type of relationships Jesus wants you to have. The first is don't give up too soon. The amount of time it takes to form deep connection is significant. There's no way to microwave the process. The types of shared experiences and conversations that it requires to form family-like relationships will take time and patience. Second, don't wait to invest. Urban settings like Minneapolis are often highly transient, so many people think that they're going to move soon, so they'll wait until they get more settled to invest in relationships. But the reality is that we need relationships now, not someday. And you might be here longer than you think. So don't wait to develop the sort of relationships that you desire. Third, don't ignore the newcomer. You may feel like your relational network is full. And we do need to acknowledge that there there are relational limitations. We have a capacity. All of us have limitations and how big that capacity is for relationships. But what if God wants you to leave room for the newcomer in your life, to welcome the stranger? Keep your eyes open for the newcomer that you can welcome, and not just in the Minnesota nice way, but truly welcoming them into deep connection. Fourth, don't wait for others to initiate. You will likely need to be the one who initiates. Others might be just as lonely as you, but most people report feeling too scared, intimidated, or insecure to take the step forward for deeper connection. And I've heard some people even say, well, I don't think that that person really needs more friends. They seem like they have enough. Loneliness numbers would suggest that it is not true of most people you say that about. So don't wait for others. Initiate. They might be looking for connection just as much as you. Now, finally, the reason that we are called to live like family is because Jesus has recreated us as family. Many commentators have noticed that the first half of Jesus' statement could have a double meaning to it. When he says, woman, behold your son, the most obvious application is about Mary's relationship to the beloved disciple John, but it is also likely that Jesus meant for Mary to behold him, her first son, hanging from the cross. 
Jesus would often use the word behold to signal his listeners that he's about to say something really important. And Jesus tells her, behold, your son, who is the divine son of God, dying on our behalf so he can recreate us as family. All of Jesus' seven statements from the cross point to his divine identity. They say something about him more than they do about those around him which has led many commentators to conclude that this third statement cannot exclusively be about Jesus finding care for his widowed mother. Jesus wants his mother and the other disciples who are with her to look up, to behold him as the son who's about to die in order to give us all a new identity as God's sons and daughters. At the beginning of John's gospel in chapter 1, verse 11 through 13, It says that he, being Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The cross is a clear expression that his people did not receive him. The people he came to save put him on the cross. His brothers did not believe. Many of his followers abandoned him. Goes on in verse 12 to say, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Through faith in Jesus, we are given the right to become children of God. It is through our common Father in heaven and through the death of the divine Son that we are bound together as family. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, they were not only alienated from God, but from one another as well. And through the entire Bible, we see the relational discord that their sin and idolatry created. Adam and Eve noticed their nakedness and were ashamed. In jealousy, their son Cain killed their other son Abel. And for generations, people oppressed and enslaved others. They fought and they killed. They sacrificed their own children and grew in their alienation from one another. Jesus was born into this type of a world to live as a perfect human in perfect relationship. He formed deep relationships with his disciples. He lived right alongside of them. He traveled with them, worked with them, taught them, cried with them, fed them, and he loved them to the bitter end. Jesus brought dignity to people who were otherwise discarded. He brought unity to people who hated and despised one another. Fishermen, tax collectors, revolutionaries, prostitutes, religious, and outcasts. We are alienated from one another because we are alienated from God. And it is only when we are united to God as his sons and daughters that we, be, that we become united to one another as family. As Jesus was bound to the cross with nails, he binds us together as family. At the beginning of John's gospel, he said that if we believe in Jesus, we become children of God. And here at the end, Jesus is making that possible through his own sacrifice. Jesus is dying as the divine son who forms a new family in his blood. And at his deepest moment of pain, one of Jesus' concerns was for his people to have a network of relationships that we need, to know and be known, to live as family the way that God designed us to be. And this will require work. It will require sacrifice. At times, it will mean dying to ourselves. And when we start to think it's not worth it or that it's not possible Consider these words from Jesus on the cross. Woman, behold your son. It was on the cross that he made the ultimate sacrifice to recreate us as family and make it possible to live as family. 
Douglas McLevy wrote a book called Every Moment Holy, which is a collection of liturgies for all sorts of everyday life situations. They're prayers that we can read on various occasions. And one of the liturgies is a liturgy for those who feel awkward in social gatherings. Anybody feel awkward in social gatherings sometimes? This is a good moment for us all to acknowledge we're all a little awkward in social gatherings. This liturgy can be read as a prayer that acknowledges the challenges and the complexity of social settings, the challenges of relationships, and the sacrificial step it takes to move toward others. Toward the end of the prayer, he wrote this, Quell my discomfort, enough that I might consider with true compassion the needs of another human being. Then let me consciously and as an act of love and choosing to love move toward that person, Let your grace compel my movements. In such moments, let me think less of myself and my own awkwardness. Let me think more of others and let me think of you. This is what it means to live like Jesus in relationships, to live like Jesus intended us as family, that we would ask God to quell our discomfort, to move toward people in love and to think more of Jesus. As Jesus was bound to the cross with nails, He binds us together as family. He makes it possible to become family and as a result to live like family. So River City Church, this week, take intentional steps toward the relational depth that God desires you to have as his people. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.